0: Are you underutilizing one of the most powerful restaurant marketing tools on the planet? What do 92 million monthly Yelp searchers see when they land on your page? Is your content accurate and attention-grabbing? Are you using every conversion tool possible to set yourself apart? Yelp is here to help. Go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash profile to sign up for a one-on-one with a specialist that will review your Yelp page and share tips to help you stand out. Again. Go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash profile to supercharge your Yelp page today. Now here we go. Pay attention to what's
1: going on beyond your business, beyond your category, because in most instances, it's going to do more to reshape expectations of how you're going to compete and survive or get crushed than anything that's happening within your category.
0: Welcome to Full Comp. A show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders and innovators, served up on the house. We've spent the last 15 months together, questioning every assumption about this industry. What I've learned from more than 100 interviews is that a 6% net profit doesn't need to be the standard. I've collected the best practices from the best operators in the world and created a guide detailing the five steps they've all taken to achieve a 15% net profit in their restaurants. You can download that guide for free by visiting restaurantprofitguide.com. Again, that's restaurantprofitguide.com. Change is hard. Becoming irrelevant is harder. Today we chat with Joe Jackman, who wrote the book on change. Joe walks us through what real change can look like in our businesses, creating a blueprint for disruption and innovation within an industry that desperately needs both.
1: Educated as an industrial designer, made my way in the design industry for a number of years, freelancing and such, and then really gravitated towards what I thought was the management of the process of design. And pretty quickly, that took me to strategy of some kind, positioning, if you will, of design in marketplace terms, consumer terms. And I got really fascinated with the whole idea of first brand strategy and then ultimately business strategy. Learned how to apply, call it strategic intentions, to shaping design work, creative work broadly and ended up being a creative director, put out my own shingle, started a company, built it for about 16 years. And that company still exists today. One of the larger players in Canada. And then a crazy thing happened. A client, uh, Loblaw Companies, I'd worked with for many, many years on everything from brand development, store design, customer experience broadly, retail communications. They said, look, we're going to stand up a new brand, what became Joe Fresh. We need to refresh an older brand, President's Choice. And we need to figure out how to be a better marketer and insight-driven set of banners and brands. And so I joined them as Executive Vice President Marketing. And I knew the company well, but I certainly didn't know that job well. And so I just sort of gravitated towards client-side, part of a senior leadership team. What I learned pretty quickly was, a pretty big transformational agenda within that company at that moment and went to retail exec boot camp as as an executive. I wasn't really used to being on that side of the desk and dealing with big publicly traded company. And fast forward two and a half years, I worked with all sorts of great partners, a great team inside Loblaw. We did some incredible work, but I had this really wide array of partners from McKinsey doing segmentation work to my advertising agency at the time was Ben Simon Byrne. My former brand consultancy, Perennial, that I was part of, was a founder of, and a variety of other partners in the digital space, et cetera. And what I was struck by was I wish I had a partner that understood how to synthesize all those inputs and outputs and help me and my team go to where we wanted to go to faster and more efficiently. And so, while they were all very good, best in class partners, they used different frameworks. They would have a bias towards starting again every time you briefed them, you know, in their own process. And those processes didn't link up. And culturally, they didn't really jive. You know, a lot of cases didn't actually even like each other because they came from different worlds, some off business campuses, some out of creative worlds. And so I thought, as a client, as a, an EVP marketing and co-responsible for a big P&L and a lot of change, I wish I had a company that brought together those disciplines under one roof and one process and could be just a better, more nimble transformational partner. And so when I left Loblaw Companies after about two and a half years, that's what I did was I built Jackman. And it is a reinvention company. It's purpose-built purpose designed to be a partner in change for companies from insights to refreshing or net new strategy, all the way to creative expression across all touch points of the customer experience. And we're about 15 years in. We've done it for over 50 companies now, partnered in, in many transformational situations from like the worst case, which is like we are broken. And we don't know how the heck we're going to fix this business all the way to we're not broken. In fact, we've been quite successful, still are successful, but the world's changing and we need to adapt to that. And so in a nutshell, that's been my career path.
0: And out of that career, you wrote a book called The Reinventionist Mindset. I feel like most folks that write a book believe that they know something that the rest of us don't. And so if we were just to talk high level, like what is the secret you're trying to share? What was the motivation behind writing the book?
1: Well, I would say it was a very pure intention and it came from working on all those companies I'm alluding to, lots of them in the retail world, some in the consumer brand space, some in hospitality, some even in distribution businesses. And what I couldn't help but notice was as much as sharpening a strategy and figuring out where to Make change and how to evolve so that the company could continue to thrive or get back to growth and relevance. Super important work. But it was equally important that that strategic intention, once it was defined, got turned into action. And the more cohesive that action was, the faster things happened. But underlying all of that, and this became really the thesis for the book, was that it was human nature itself, that if it was on your side in a transformational situation, you could move mountains, you could get through barriers, you could get to places that you could only hope to get to much more surely with confidence and faster, if the people involved were aligned and that they saw the same things and they were motivated by them and that it wasn't only functional, and practical, and tactical, but if there was a higher order to the work and the transformation, you might call it a purpose that everyone bought into and was excited about and therefore leaned into. And so I started jotting down, when was it that change happened faster, when people got excited and therefore leaned in harder, or did extraordinary things that people said can't be done Either can't be done at all, or can't be done in that time frame. And miraculously, things happen. And I started to take notes and like, why? Why is it that this is happening in the way it is, and it isn't maybe in some other case I'm working on? And it started eight or so thoughts, observational thoughts, paragraphs, and then started to distill dist- down to shorter versions, and then eventually down to five simple principles. And collectively, I call them the reinventionist mindset. And that's the heart of the book is to say, look, you want to make change and change is hard. I can guarantee the only thing harder is irrelevance. And we don't want to be irrelevant in our business lives, in our personal professional lives. So here's a simple set of principles, altogether a mindset that will just help you not only Thrive in moments of transformation and change, but also be really good at it and confident at it. Not a sense of I'm comfortable with change now, but like I'm beyond good. I'm pro athlete good at it. And that's what I was really trying to get. And honestly, I wrote the book for my team and the clients that I was working with because I thought, look, if there's a formula here for how to do this, I really would love to get that down on paper and share that with people. And Use it as a starting point because since I wrote the book and published early in 2020, January, I've had so much feedback and so much dialogue with people that have gone on transformational journeys. And I think what resonated with them was look, strategy is important, insights are important, organizational structures, the actions you take to modernize business, all of these things are factors to success. But at the heart, there's a human how of making change successfully. And that's what I was trying to get to in the reinventionist mindset.
0: And I would argue mission accomplished. One of the reasons that I like the book and one of the reasons I connected with it so viscerally is because the book isn't just platitudes, embrace change, hope for the best. Um, because <laughs> really, man, I've read all those books already and they don't get you far because it's not about, you know, granted, like. It's great to embrace the idea of change and change being good and change being an opportunity. But very few books actually take the time and go through the effort of explaining what that looks like in practical application. You do a really good job in the book of saying, this is what embracing change looks like in a very actionable way. And then you stack on top of that stories that illustrate what this could look like in your business. This is what successful execution of this principle looks like. Well, thank you. That's
1: very high praise. I appreciate that because I set out to write a how-to book in a way. And I, like you, have read many good books that get across important ideas. But I struggle with ideas in their purest form if they can't be applied easily. If you can't translate an intention and you say, yeah, that strikes me as important. How do I put that in motion in my own world? And I didn't honestly want to join the list of books that stay up in that ether. And so the way the book is structured, as you're pointing out, is let me get across what the principle is and why it matters, what it is tangibly, and then let me tell you, using a case history, a story of where that principle was applied. And in fact in many cases, was learned. And then at the end of the book, I try to bring it together into very much, I think it's I actually called it a workbook, where, okay, let's take these ideas, these principles in a simple framework and let's put it in your hands, the reader. And you might be an entrepreneur or you might be leading a giant business. And here's how to work through it. Just ask and answer these questions and embrace these principles of how to go through it and the chances are that the odds of success are going to go up
0: well and I'd love to use this as an opportunity to get granular and talk about the five principles themselves and what they would look like in practical application let's start with the first one which is seek insight everywhere what's the big idea there and then what does it look like well i'll tell you where it came from was i
1: noticed that businesses and leadership teams just naturally tend to be a little bit insular. They compete within a category. If I'm in the supermarket business, I pay attention to other supermarket players. If I'm in the restaurant business, of course, you know, I'm focused on how do I earn share with consumers that shop at, you know, or dine at other places. And when I go to conferences, well, guess which conferences I'm going to go to—the restaurant industry conference or the supermarket industry conference. If I read trade magazines, if I built relationships with others that maybe aren't in my business but are in my category that I want to learn from, guess what? They all sort of live within the same ecosystem that I do. And what I kept noticing, because in more than fifty examples now of businesses we've helped, that The world was changing so profoundly and so much faster, and it wasn't changing within the four walls of any particular category. It was changing horizontally. So what was happening in my expectation if I'm on my iPhone and I'm hailing an Uber was resetting my expectations in how I might expect my banking experience to go. And I was thinking, we have to get out of our categories and get out of the insular way of Benchmarking our businesses and start to think more broadly, start to get into the heads of customers and their broader experience, consumers, and also open the aperture to how the world is changing all the way down to generational change. And so, Seek Insight in Everywhere was a way to say, hey, folks, pay attention to what's going on beyond your business, beyond your category, because in most instances, it's going to do more to reshape expectations of how you're gonna compete and survive or get crushed than anything that's happening within your category. Like food is an example. Like I'm totally fascinated with the food world. I've partnered with restaurant chains. I've done broader work in the food spectrum with big chain supermarkets. I've brought food into smaller footprint stores like drugstores because food is frequency and food is experience. And here's what I've learned. The consumer's on the move. And food is right at the heart of so much of life today, entertainment, not just sustenance, et cetera, et cetera. And guess what? Depending on which category you're in, narrowly defined category, it's happening all around you across categories. You better dial into what's going on in the supermarket, as we used to call it back in the day, home meal replacement. You better dial into the fact that if you're a fine dining establishment, that consumers want more than simply the on-premise service experience and your wonderful food that your chef and team prepare. What they want is to be able to have a sense of community. They want to connect. They might want to take home product. They might want to buy your product in stores that they frequent. They might want to join your community and be connected to you in deeper, more engaging ways, the world's changing and it's happening in real time across all of these categories and touch points. And you really need to be dialed into that.
0: I couldn't agree with you more. I would argue that one of the biggest hurdles that we face as an industry is this group think that occurs from only looking inward and not looking at other industries and adopting their playbooks for growth and evolution within a changing world, a changing economy. The next generation certainly has different values than we do. And I think we need to embrace those, which actually brings me to the next principle, which is embracing uncertainty. Today, I want to talk to you about the greatest sales tool in your arsenal, your menu. And I'm not talking about the physical menu in your restaurant. I'm talking about the menu on your website. That's the menu that will determine whether or not a page view turns into a patron. So, how do we put our best foot forward? I trust Pop Menu. Pop Menu can provide your restaurant with an interactive menu that hooks your customers from the start and it's mobile friendly. It's functional, beautiful, and presents your offering in an irresistible way. Your restaurant's website is your window to the world. Let's dress it up with Pop Menu. For a limited time only, get $100 off your first month. Plus you lock in one unchanging monthly rate. Go to potmenu.com forward slash full comp. That's $100 off your first month at p-o-p-m-e-n-u.com slash full comp.
1: Yeah, I'd love to finish one point to make it very tangible. As you pointed out in the writing of the book, Like, I really want to be practical. I I want to take what oftentimes can be thought of as platitudes, as you said earlier, and just make it granular, make it real. So, for example, think about the restaurant industry and its evolution over the last, not even 10 years, over the last five years. And the degree to which delivery was becoming more important, and I would argue at least at scale. And listen, you may operate a single unit or you may have a small chain. You may be regional, who knows, or you may be part of a bigger scale national or international organization. But what you couldn't miss was that convenience was important to consumers. They were looking for more convenient ways to access what they wanted. And you could see it in e-com and online shopping, the emergence of delivery in the, call it general merchandise and apparel worlds. And it was coming in food. And yet a lot of players sort of slow walked that. They said, well, you can't figure out the economics. Why did DoorDash and Uber Eats grow and scale as fast as they did? Did that come out of nowhere or was that coming for a long time? Well, you could see it. You know, if you sought insight, you could see that happening in worlds beyond the food preparation world, but also within food prep and hospitality. And I think today there's a chorus of anxiety, maybe even resentment about the economic punishment of those delivery platforms, how much they take in margin and how little relatively is left for the restaurant operator. Well, I would say as an industry, look, we own that we saw it coming. We let them disrupt. We didn't figure it out so that there wouldn't be a disruption. I have this philosophy that says, look, if anybody's going to be the better version of me or my business, it sure as heck is going to be me. I'm not going to allow someone to come in and just disrupt. And so we were slow as an industry on our feet. We held on to the status quo too long. We saw it coming. We said, "Eh, it doesn't really matter to us in economic whatever. And then What happens, happens. And so look, the way you participate in the future to shape it the way you want is to actually roll up your sleeves and get into it and lean into it, not have it done to you. And I think a lot of what's happened in the hospitality world has just been done to us. And the pandemic, of course, made it worse. So let's take that lesson, shake it off. I had a great conversation with Nick Kokonis of Alinea fame out of Chicago on my own podcast, The Reinventionist. And I talked to Nick, and the thing I love about Nick is yes, he's a restaurateur and his partner's a chef, but he didn't come from the restaurant business. He came from the world of derivatives trading and the financial markets, and he looks at things analytically and he said, Where's the world going? What do we need to do? And when a pandemic came along, he said, Okay, I don't want to hold on to the past. I know what we are. We're a Michelin star restaurant, but we got to pivot. We're going to figure out how to sell beautiful, craft prepared, chef driven meals, but not in a beautifully designed environment, but in a $35 prefix box. And everyone said, are you crazy? And he said, probably, but that's what we're going to do. So he figured it out. And that's what we need to do as an industry, like seek insight everywhere, adapt to what's coming. And you don't have to have the answers that go all the way to scale right away, but just participate. And guess what? The world will be much to your liking as it unfolds.
0: You know, I can speak for myself and say that In my best moments as an entrepreneur, I had a bias towards action. But for most people and for my life, for the most part, I've had a bias towards inaction because action is scary and it's risky. And you advocate for action and immediate action. I think that's all kind of wrapped into the create the future now principle. Can you unpack that for me? You nailed it, actually. When we talk about change, we tend
1: to, naturally as humans, we want to get it right. We want to assess what's the upside, what's the downside, where's risk? What's the trade-off between staying where I'm at and doing what I'm doing versus taking that risk and trying something new? And it's a very insidious, You know, the way I think about it is the status quo that's in our heads and it lives there. And the status quo is a very comfortable place. We're familiar with it. It may not be perfect, but at least we know it. And it might be, well, we know how to make money, and if we make those changes, I'm not sure if we're going to be as successful or make as much money. So, as humans, we have a very, very clever way of talking ourselves out of making change, simply because we want to stay safe or play it safe. My point is, change is coming. The future is not some far-off place; it arrives daily, and you either decide that you want to participate in it because. It, As I said earlier, if you don't take those calculated risks, but make leaps, just try stuff, evolve. You don't have to figure things out for all time, just figure them out for right now and see what happens and be as scrappy as possible. Well, guess what happens? If you adopt that mindset, create the future now, and I'm never going to get caught being flat-footed, the future will never be done to me. It won't surprise me one day and go, holy shit, I'm irrelevant. My business model is gone. And that's what's happened to a lot of legacy businesses. Very successful over time, but they bought their own hype. They stayed put and they said, look, why would we change? We've been so successful for all these years. Well, if you look at business models over generations, what you'll find is a lot of the most successful ones, like legendarily successful business models, stayed exactly where they were and just continue to replicate it until they ran completely out of road and, in fact, drove those models off a cliff. And so I choose the future and participate in it. The past, to me, is something that was interesting, and it can hold some clues, but it's irrelevant to the future. It starts every day, and I need to figure it out. And what do I carry forward from the past? What are the assets? What are the maybe the intentions? Certainly sometimes the team members. But uh, my whole view is, listen, I'll change on a dime because sometimes I have to and sometimes I just get ahead of others when I decide to sooner than later. And that's a pretty good method of staying relevant.
0: I couldn't agree with you more, but I will say there's another side to this coin. One of the chapters that spoke most to me was called, Hold Up, It's Working. And so change is great. And when you've made a decisive choice, that's great. But it's the follow through. It's the belief that that is the right choice, even when it feels like it's not. I can't imagine that quitting early is something that's unique to me. Have you seen it as a a pretty common trait? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, listen, we're suspicious
1: as humans, right? We're suspicious of risk. You know, what does that involve? What what will that mean I have to do differently? But we're equally suspicious of success when things are new. Well, that might be an anomaly. That might have been a one-off. Maybe it was the location that that worked at. But I don't think we could scale that. Um, or there is some success here, but I don't know if we can convert our entire business, particularly if you operate multi-units like in hospitality often and in retail, that would cost the earth, wouldn't it? Let's do the math on getting from where we are today to what is looking promising in a small scale experiment. And we stop ourselves or we look for empirical evidence that in a way de-risks the move. And we talk ourselves out of Change, even though it shows promise. And we live in an era of disruption. Why is that? Well, it's because the world got a lot of tools, courtesy of technology, that enabled players that were smaller to act like bigger players. You know, Shopify, as a single force, enabled small retailers to act like big ones, be that efficient, that connected to customers, etc. And it enabled disruption. Well, why was disruption possible in the first place? Because the people that could have disrupted, either they didn't see it coming, which is unforgivable, or they did see it coming, which is worse, because they chose not to embrace it. I often think in brands that were sort of more maybe my generation, but Blockbuster should have become Netflix. It didn't. Kodak should have become the iPhone. It didn't. And fill in the blank, yesterday's model mattress company should have become Casper. It did. These businesses got disrupted because they said, ah, listen, the new way of doing things, we can't be certain we'll make money. And by the way, it's just a rounding error on our business anyway. And scale is actually an enemy. Success and scale are insidious forces to prevent change. Because what they say is, well, we are who we are. Look at how successful. Look at how big we are. We don't want to be messing around with some newfangled way of doing things. Why would we do that? Well, you do it when that newfangled way of things comes along. And in a matter of 24 months or 36 months, chews up half your market share because you were sitting still and the world had moved on. So on the heels, hopefully, of a pandemic, I think this is more known today. It's more accepted today, at least I hope so. But back when I when I wrote the book, I think there were a lot of fence-sitters. Think of how long it took big, successful businesses to digitize, right? Like even take text messaging as a way to connect with customers. Well, customers themselves, I mean, think about your own personal life. When did you start to use text messaging as a way to connect with friends and family in a meaningful way? It's got to be like years ago, right? I mean, there's very few brands, even today. That got on to that and said, that could be meaningful part of our customer engagement. And a lot of them were small startups who said, Hey, listen, can I have your mobile number? Because I'm going to text you and say, Look, that reservation you wanted, the slot just opened up. Or maybe you want to know when the chef is going to come in and do that tasting menu or whatever. And then all these, slightly bigger, mid-sized, very large companies, they're just sort of caught flat-footed and the world changes. So, you know, it's just a
0: minor example of how we need to just get on with it and keep a pace. What's going on? I couldn't agree with you more, especially considering the fact that so many of these pivots, texting included, is cheap. It's not particularly expensive or hard to adopt technologies like that. I think, one of the latter principles, and it's the last one I want to attack on the show, obsess the outcome really speaks to this reinventionist mindset and the best way to stay true to it once you've decided to travel this path. Can you talk to me about what is involved in obsessing the outcome?
1: You know, I grew up in the world of first creativity, design broadly. And as I said earlier, I got on to strategy because strategy was a way to shape and intention? What is it that we're trying to do? And more importantly, at least as I was learning strategy, how will we do it? I didn't go to business school. I wasn't formally trained in strategy. And so I started to understand strategy in a very simple way, which is strategy is simply at a very high level uh, statements of how am I going to get from where I am today to where I want to go? There's only one wrinkle. You got to know where you want to go because no amount of strategy is going to take you there if you haven't defined the outcome. And I started to realize that in business transformational situations, particularly with the, the suffering businesses, the broken ones, we'd set like these, if you're familiar with the term BHAG, hey, this is what we want the financial outcome to look like. And that was very normal. We believe that we can grow our share or we can hit top line margin revenue, what have you of these kinds of targets. Now, how will we do that? What I was arguing for in Obsess the Outcome was, yes, let's define that and stretch ourselves so that we're gonna make strategic choices that are bigger, bolder, and may actually break us out of the pack and get us into differentiation so that we could uniquely be different from others. But also to set it in aspirational terms, what is the outcome we imagine achieving together? Might we become something that people would get excited about beyond financial outcomes? And so my version of Obsess the Outcome is to an outcome that includes what's the aspiration for you and your business? What do you want to become? And yes, define a BHAG in financial terms that go with that.
0: It's an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I like to give the guest an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. There are thousands of restaurant owners and operators listening now. Do you have any advice or words of encouragement you'd like to offer?
1: The advice I would give you is yes, the world's changing all around you. But if you get true on who you are, to whom, and what makes you different and special, and you hold out that North Star, as we've been talking about. There isn't anything you can't achieve. And it's pretty easy to be despondent at this moment. Look, there's never been a better time to create businesses, to grow businesses. All the tools that I could have only dreamed about. Imagine if I wanted people to know about my business as a startup 10 years ago. Well, what would that mean? That would mean like not only word of mouth and maybe good signage, but it would mean like advertising and spending money I didn't have. Well, today, social media, the influencer community, getting people engaged with your brand has never been more straightforward. There's more need for content, and people want to hear your unique story. Don't lose heart. It's a noble pursuit, for sure. And the world needs more brilliant food propositions and experiences. What I love is that people in the pandemic sort of threw away the four walls around what they were. Just go at it and evolve and learn and throw out the stuff that doesn't work and back the things that do and take them to scale and just keep going.
0: That's Joe Jackman. You can pick up his book, The Revisionist Mindset, wherever books are sold. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Copel. You've been listening to Full Comp.